This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, and you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And with that, welcome to MM Plays, where we examine games, mechanics, and encounters with examples in our actual play. Tonight we discuss fixing rules on the fly, including how we handled it in our Cortex Prime Children of the Shroud campaign. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Chris. My name is Phil. And I am Old Man Logan. Hmm. Suddenly have a frog in my throat. You suddenly have a frog in your throat. Ribbit. What's up, everybody? Uh, yeah. Do you have any announcements? I have one announcement. Let's talk about sharing the show, folks. So if you are a uh, listener to this podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it if you just told somebody else about it. Use your favorite social media. Use your... I don't know. Write a letter, tell a friend, text. I guess you could text instead of writing a letter, right? Mm-hmm. Tap a stranger on the shoulder on the street. Maybe don't do that. Okay, maybe not. There's almost always one of those <clears throat> posts that goes on Twitter that says, hey, what are your favorite non-AP role-playing mm-hmm. shows? Mm-hmm. That's your cue. Put yes. it in there. You could even do AP role-playing show these days. Yeah. yeah. Technically, we cover both. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just go onto a crowded subway with a loud radio and play it over your podcaster. It would help us a ton. It provides us, uh, you know, more listeners, which could potentially provide us more money for our Patreon just from being listened to. And that lets us buy better equipment. Like, uh, we just bought a Zoom H8. That was mostly on me. But, you know, we got one, and that, that'll let me buy better mics for everybody. Like, mm-hmm. these mics are okay, but there is an upgrade path that yes. we have. Looking forward to having that H8. Me too. I can't wait to edit everybody on individual tracks. It's going to be very exciting. All right. Let's move into our uh, episode. Sometimes you encounter situations in games where the rules as written either don't apply or just don't exist. Sometimes the GMing players can just wing it, but there's often situations where it's better to pause the game and then work together to make a rule or mechanic work. In our recent Children of the Shroud campaign, we had an incident where the rules as written were a bit muddled on how to deal with and buy hitches in a duel. I remember this very explicitly. Mm -hmm. Because dueling was a module that was created for Children of the Shroud, this became something that we fixed during the game. So tonight, we're going to examine how and why to do this. But first, we have to take a trip to the workshop. Workshop! Workshop! You got rules! We're playing them! Sometimes they don't work! You gotta fix them while you're playing! No dead air! Keep going! You gotta fix it! Fix the rules on the fly! In the workshop! Don't suck. Yes. Do not suck. And of course, before we get to the next piece, we gotta nibble on some bamboo while we get some definitions from the panda. Behold! You are in the presence of Definition Panda. Yeah, let's run through a few. Oxford defines rules as one set of explicit or understood regulations or principles governing conduct with a particular activity or sphere. In our misdirected Mark dictionary, rules are a combination of mechanics and procedures that make up the rule system in which we play. Mechanics are defined as the machinery or working parts or something. And in our misdirected Mark definition, mechanics are the things that tell you to roll things, have numeric bonuses, those kinds of things. Procedures are the things that guide how a turn order is done, how initiative goes through, the play sequence for a Forged in the Dark game that tells you what the overall procedure phases of play are. How our dual system works. Yes. Yes. I mean, our dual system is a combination of both procedure, which structures how the dual works, and mechanics, which govern what happens inside each part of that procedure, and overall that rule package exists. Many games have rules that appear to be rigid, like d20 tests in D&D or the 2d6 check in PVTA. 
even though there are a few mods to each role, there may be multiple choices for outcome. The mechanics of the role itself are often standard. This has to do a lot with stakes and fictional positioning and those kinds of things. And then the mechanics, the rule bears out how you will resolve that. But then you have to re-engage narrative and things like that. We've talked about this, uh, oh geez, a long time ago on the show. I speculate earlier than things that we have out on the website. We've had a deep discussion about procedures and mechanics. So if you're a patron, you can go dig through the archive and find our episode on mechanics and procedures. There are also games like Cortex Prime where the modular nature of the mechanics mean that different situations may have different ways that the rules are used. And even more so in Cortex Prime, because it's not one cohesive set of rules, it is a plug-and-play system where you pick various things. It is sometimes the interface between those things that gets a little jinky, like sometimes not as smooth as you think it is. The actual rule packages themselves might be smooth, but how they kind of interact with each other may not be well-defined. In our Children of the Shroud game, just, I don't know how podcasting time works, weeks ago? Weeks ago. (laughs) Weeks ago. Let let me put it this way. The after show that just got released was recorded four weeks ago. Sure. So in our Children of the Shroud game weeks ago, for you listening now, we are often modifying and interpreting the rules as we go. Some of it you hear on the mics, and a lot of it we just snip out because it's just not that interesting. So we had a battle with the legends in that in that game, and the duels were involved to a point where we had to decide how to use and implement those hitches that were brought into the scene, because we uh, had to stop and, and talk about it for a hot second. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, what's going on? Eventually, we decided that hitches could be brought up until the person who rolled the hitch picked up their dice. It's a good, good choice. And that the person who rolled the hitch had to give the other player a chance to actually buy that hitch. Yeah, and that actually borders on three things. Hitches are a core part of Cortex. Yep. Mm-hmm. So though that is a core rule in Cortex Prime that ones on dice can be purchased to create complications in the game. Our duel is based off of contests, yep. which is that mechanic is actually a core mechanic in the game. But the duel itself as a rule package is a custom mod that we created and plugged into the game. Because it has all sorts of little add-ons and pieces on top of those things that we're talking about. Exactly. And so we just... You can't, from a design point of view, write every situation that these mods are going to interact in. And even more so as you're building the game. Like maybe we could have spent eight more weeks developing, designing, playtesting, but that's never been how we've dealt with Cortex games in the past. Or generally games, period. Exactly. So because of that, these kind of janky interfaces pop up. Every now and then. Can I say one of the worst things that ever happened to role-playing games, I think? And this might be pretty controversial. Sure. When Robin Laws coined F20. Uh, sure. And the reason I say that is because game design in and of itself is all about how different mechanisms work together. Okay. And when you say F20, you have decided to lump a bunch of D20 games together, and not all those D20 games work the same way. No. Sure. I would would agree with that. So, like, now you're, like, lumping, like, a D20 game is a D20 game, which... They're not. Well, I mean, I don't think, I mean, Mutants and the Masterminds is only mildly related DNA-wise to, say, 5th edition. Yes. And, I mean, it's closer to 3.5, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was based off the 3.5 yeah, SRD. It, but it's design based, pieces are that. Based, I think, is the key word. Yeah, I, my, uh, my point is it's closer in design in a lot of ways to the 3.5 rule set than the 5th edition rule set. Yeah. If you want me to take this a step further, the 2D20 system from Modiphius, that's a D20 game. Essentially, even well, though I mean, it's, it's a game with a D20, right? Correct. Like, but if every, if every F20 game is a D20 game, 
I mean, I think Robin's, and again, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give credit Rob, Robin, shit or not for this, but it started with that SRD is the D20 SRD. Yes. And then games started having to carry that label D20. Mm-hmm. Even Mutants and Masterminds is technically a D20 game. Sure. I mean, it but, fits more closer to that thing than than some of these other games that we're talking about. Sure. But I know. I mean, Fifth Edition isn't a D20 game. Like it doesn't bear the D20 logo. It's not based on the D20 SRD. It's actually, it generated a new SRD. It did. So uh, to me, it's distinct from say 3.5. Pathfinder 1 and 3.5 bear that homology. Yeah. Yes. And Mutants and Masterminds technically bears that homology, but it also has then divergent rules because it doesn't use hit points. If I remember correctly, right? It doesn't use hit points. It uses saving throws, I think. Something like that for damage. It, it, it's there's, been a while. It's been a while. And then the superpower package doesn't even resemble anything else that's been done in any other D20 game. So yeah, I'm with you. Like F20 is a kind of a uh, lazy grouping. There's a more distinct dichotomy that you can kind of trace through a bunch of those games. Yeah, but unfortunately, a lot of people think of F20 as just being D20 games, regardless of what the intent was. Sure. I mean, if you yeah. think if you think all games that roll a D20 for an outcome system are all the same, we have a surprise for you. <laughs> that's poor. That's poor grouping. Thirteenth Age to me is not the same as Third Edition D and D is not the same as Fifth Edition. No, I mean I, you can draw a family tree of how these things all came to be. Yeah, like, sure, absolutely. And like you know where they. I mean, you can draw you can draw a family tree for most of those games that will end up at the 1.0 D20 SRD. Mm-hmm. But like Evolution, well, they all spread out and do their own different things. To go along with the thing that you said, like Thirteenth Age is Fourth Edition DNA, which had a different. Oh, SRD sure. than the, sure. the third edition DNA, which has a different DNA. I mean, it's the yeah. same DNA, but a different strand, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, where, you know, where do these things fork off from each other? Who's related, who's related closely to who? Like, Look at the difference between second and third. I mean, they're, they're vastly different kinds of games. Yeah, but second is, that okay. You do powers and skills. Yeah. Sure. But second still uses Thacko and the mm-hmm. tables and ascending. Like if you're going to draw that F20 line, it starts at three. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because two is distinctly different from three. And truthfully, th- three is distinctly different from four. Four is distinctly different from five. But in that D20 glut, mm-hmm. there's a lot of games that are all like kissing cousins to each other. Sure. And again, not all the same, but they all bear some resemblance to each other in that one strata of time. The term F20 drives me crazy. Sure. I get it. Now, I've never. It didn't 15, 20 years ago. Well, it didn't didn't 15, 20 years ago because we were in that strata and all those games looked alike. Mm -hmm. But then we moved on. Yeah. And we learned a lot about a lot of games. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the same way of saying that all PBTA games are the same. Yes. PBTA isn't a mechanic. No. Right. It's not a mechanic or a rule system. It is a design philosophy more than anything. Yeah, let's talk about... Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Now, now we're just on tangent row sure. here. Bob's no, already signaled not. for us to get off the tangent, but Chris and, then, and I are like, nah, why don't we just ride the... Yeah, let's, let's ride, ride the rumble this. strip for a yeah, few we're minutes. Gonna, we're going to walk down this road. Yeah, <laughs> if you hear that rumbling, we know we hear it too. Yeah, so there's, there's a reason I just erased four paragraphs worth of script. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so like the PBTA genetics is actually becoming more and more fascinating as time goes on because there was PBTA, right? There was Apocalypse World, sure. and there was Dungeon World, and then there was Monster of the Week and uh, Monster Hearts. I think those are the games that probably we can like point the closest, at. the closest orbits. Yeah. And then we yep. get a little bit farther away, like masks comes up and yep. it's, it's the same, but it's not right. Yep. Now we start getting forged in the dark games, which 
have that DNA inside of it, but are very different. Oh, to me, that becomes like third and fourth edition, right? Like, sure. Like Forge in the Dark becomes its own. Is it related to PBTA? Yes. But it becomes its own thing. And then it spawns its own offspring. Yeah. And like the newest birth to all of this is the, the car from Brindlewood games, which have that DNA inside of it. But they're not exactly the same because of how they're structured also. Yeah. Which is the same way in how like the Forge in the Dark games are not the same because of how they're structured. I mean, I think that's the part when we talk about PBTA being a design aesthetic and not a rule set. You get to see some really divergent stuff in there because... If you're designing with that general aesthetic, you can go in all sorts of directions, right? Like Cordova's Brindlewood, you know, the, the whole, that whole yeah, line. all those, the three games that exist right now, and there'll be like three or four more by the end of the year. Exactly. Yeah. Like all of those are in a very different place than say, obviously Dungeon World. Yeah. Right. But also Masks. Masks uh, has a very unique take on damage and things like that, which mm -hmm. actually get carried over like genetically over to Brindlewood. Yeah, sort of. There's yes. a lot of ground covered by all of those different games and there's still a lot of ground yet to be discovered. Which is what I keep looking for is the new and interesting things in tabletop mm -hmm. role-playing games. By the way, if anybody has anything new or interesting, please send it my way so I can read it. Well, and this is why I think a lot of designers, designers who have done it will tell you and designers who haven't done it will make them, will fall into this trap is that they'll be like, oh, designing a PBTA game is easy, mm -hmm. right? Designing a PBTA game is deceptively hard. Because there isn't a rule set. Like, there isn't an SRD you pick up and you, like, yeah. plunk it into your game and change the names of the skills. Yes, it's a move. Mm -hmm. But every one of those moves. There's a lot of nuance to like, those moves. You, you, can, you can either just kind of clone moves from another game or you can completely do something different in the framework of a move. Yes. The reason I like talking about this is because I'm always looking for, like, new and interesting stuff. And I've been reading more games lately. So, mm -hmm. like... I read the, the entirety of the index card RPG. Mm -hmm. It's fine, right? It's got some really nice quick play things for, for role-playing games. So you can get to the game and, and play the game pretty quickly, but it's, it's got a D20 base. I wouldn't necessarily call it an F20 game, Nope. but rooms areas have a difficulty number and then they can either be shifted up by three or down by three based on how hard it is. And they got rid of the big number. So it's only modifiers for like your, your standard D and D stuff. And like you can use index card for like zones, like in fate, but I've seen all those mechanics before and it didn't feel like they were put together in an interesting way, but nothing that was in my mind revolutionary or fascinating or created a play experience that I hadn't had before. I mean, at 40 years out now, it's getting harder for me to find mm -hmm. a play experience that's unique. Yeah. The other one was Lancer. I'm like, I want to read this mech game because everybody talks about it. So I went and read it. I'm like, well, it uses bounded accuracy, but the bounded accuracy is inside of using like these D6s to add to your D20 roll. With, and it's got uh, like this, these two distinct phases of play, which is like when you're in your mech and when you're out of your mech, and I'm like, that's cool. And then it has, you can gear up your mech based on the tier that you're in as far as the game goes. That's like your leveling system. I'm like, well, that's just like Numenera. I'm like, sure. these are cool things that work together. Yep. They're decently interesting, but there's nothing spectacular about it or something that was like, that hit me with the wow factor. It's hard, man. There aren't a lot of times I've been hit with the wow factor. I mean, I can count them on my hands. After that, it's execution. I like your design and did you execute it well? Yeah. Or did you combine some things that I'm familiar with into a way that I haven't seen combined before mm -hmm. so that they Novelty. work well? Yeah. That, that, that becomes something that's kind of fun. Cordova didn't invent procedural mysteries, nor Arlandia did it before, yeah. before Cordova did. But what makes Cordova's stuff, Cordova stuff is that he does a spectacular job of using the PBTA framework, which is the same thing that Vincent did when he created Apocalypse World. Jason codes how he runs games 
into his PBTA framework, into his PBTA uh, system. It's not even, for me, like those are cool, right? I sure. also like the idea like of asking the person yeah, that, a, a thing or, or painting the scene, which are not original techniques like he's been using them they've been in other games too. I think Bluebeard's Bride did it sure. really early on. For me, I like structure in games too. Like those things are cool. I liked all them in the way that they impact play, the things that we just talked about, mm -hmm. but the structure of his campaign thing, which nobody, like you haven't seen it yet in public access, but I've read it all now. And like in the between and in Brindlewood Bay too, there is a particular structure and triggers that happen as you play through mm -hmm. the campaign. And to me, that is a thing that I feel like people have tried to do before, but no one's succeeded at doing it as well as that game has done it. Which is the thing that's wowing me, aside from those other things together. Sure, because it's an interesting blend of both. Um, it's mechanizing your campaign. Yeah, it's why I was so jazzed about Forged in the Dark games. When we were playing, you two were playing Bob and Jerry, because, you know, this is radio and you can't see who I'm pointing at. Sure. <laughs> uh, when we were playing Scum and Villainy. Yes. Because it had the the phase of play, which we sort of use some of that stuff. Like, Dungeon World, we, when the area peaks, like, you were in the town or you were in the dungeon, right? There was, like, two distinct phases, but that's not in the game. Correct. The mechanics don't support that. Correct. We just did that. Yeah. Yeah. But that game does that. Like, there's a whole sequence that goes along with yeah. that. Fascinating. I know. That's all I have to say. Do, are we done? Can we move on to the back? Do you want to go back to the episode now? No. Yeah, go ahead. I think we're, we're done with that. Do this episode? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. We could, we could, we could, we could drive on to this episode. I, I would just like to stay for the record before we move on because something hit me earlier and I just want to get it on the Please record. Please do. That Janky Interfaces is the name of my techno band. There you fair. Go. That's fair. Nice. I just thought I'd bring that up. I do also want to give you credit. You did attempt to reel us in. I saw the hand just in gesture. Case. I wanted to make sure that if we were going to get into the weeds, nope. you were well aware. It's, it's cool. I producer overrode that. It's fine. That's, yeah, not your that's fault. fine. I, I saw Bob doing yeah. his part. You trying did to exactly pull us back what you were supposed to yes, do. This, this is a give and take show, and, and, yeah. and I give and Chris takes. We want, no, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's actually <laughs> true. Well, since we're back, we let's probably, do the thing where we talk about another yeah, show on the network. Let's do that. Let's do that. Because we have other shows on the network. I mean, we like to talk about, we would just like to think that we are the stars, but we're not. We're not. Because we have a bunch of excellent shows, one of which. Panda's Talking Games. All the talk lately. The last two weeks, both their episodes just get all sorts of buzz. Yeah. Panda's Talking Games, good stuff. Queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Panda's Phil and Senda every Wednesday answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing tabletop role-playing games. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. You know, I say the last two weeks, but in reality, it was probably like three or four weeks ago. By the time they hear this, three, four, six... It's yeah. timey-wimey. Do you remember what those two episodes were, Phil? No. <laughs> you got to remember, when Phil, when Phil unplugs the headphones at the end of an episode, that, that episode is gone. That's why I asked. I want to be funny as shit. Oh. Do I know? No. No, not a clue. I know one of them. One of them was the episode about what happens when people drop out of your games. The other one was when you, uh, when you want people to like a thing as much as you do. Uh, yeah, those sound vaguely okay. Oh my God, please <laughs> like the thing as much as I do. It resonated with a lot of people. You should listen to those episodes. I think they're 310 and 311. Of Panda's Talking Games. Good cool. stuff. Okay, what were we talking about? We no were idea. We were talking about fiction rules, fiction on, the fly, rules right? on the fly, right? Fiction rules on, on the, the fly. fly. Yeah. So, so we have forest. questions. Yeah. We're, we're in the forest and we have questions. <laughs> Question number one. What is the situation in a game where you modified a rule on the fly and it worked well? I'm going to caveat. We can't talk about Children of the Shroud. We just did. So pick another one. I mean, we could talk about other times in Children of the Shroud that we could. Yes. Yes, we could. I, I can't think of any offhand right now. Bill? For Children of the Shroud? I know I fix things so many, I fix so many things on the fly. Yeah. How this about, is a weird question. Cause this is just what I do constantly. Right. Like this is constant. Like how this is ox? a, God fix shit all the all time. time. 
Fix, yeah, fix it all the time on Ox. Fixing rules um, on the fly is a game master technique that you just learn and yeah, do. Yeah, it is. It yeah, is. I mean, it, what what is the situation? Like every game, I think I'm in a situation where I'm fixing something. Um, and and I'll admit, sometimes I'm fixing stuff because I didn't expect somebody to do something a certain way. Sometimes I'm fixing something because, like in a Cortex game, there's just this weird gap, and it's like, oh, what are we gonna do with this? Like. Oh, what do we, what, you know, what do you do with the effect die on this role? Like, oh, uh, carry it over to this next role. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a common one. Like, are we going to carry an effect die over or, you know, sometimes like, do I need an effect die for this role? Like if I didn't set it up in the rules. So when I prep cortex, there are times where in the rules, I will be like, this is a test and I will write down like the effect die does not count. This is what I'm going to do with hitches. This is what, you know, heroic success means or whatever. Sometimes you guys just ask a question and be like, can I roll a thing? And I'll be like, yeah, go ahead, roll a thing. Let's do it. And then you'll be like, does the, does the effect die count? And I'll be like, hmm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it sure. sure. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll let you use that on your next roll. And that's important for Cortex because there are times that you can, you know, the difference between can I succeed with, you know, can I succeed by five or by six? Numerically, that doesn't make much of a difference. But if you have an effect die, that can make a huge difference you know, picking the right effect die for something. But I think the thing is that the rules for it, like for tests, like you usually in the core game, if the effect die is there for magnitude of success, because you're comparing it to something, mm -hmm. we often use it as a momentum tool where we allow a test to generate an effect die that you can put in your pool for the next thing. There's an artifact from our aux game. Yeah. Yes. Because yep. our super science role has that rule built into yeah. it. And I like it, right? I like that if you're going to do kind of a prep thing or whatever, that you can carry a die over or something. Plus it also, like Jerry says, it engages the thing where it's like, well, now I got to make some choices here. Do I, you know, which, which amount, do I want the heroic success or do I want the D12 effect die? Well, it, it can also make a difference in something. For those who don't play Cortex, when you're rolling a whole handful of dice, you might have a thing where you're trying to beat a, a 10 and you're saying, well, if I pick the, you know, the D12 is my success, I'll get the five on the D12 then I'll succeed with a heroic success. And then my effect dies a D6, which will get bumped up to a D8. Or I can just succeed with a four on the D6. And that D12 becomes my effect die. And even though it was the higher number, now that's a D12 effect die. That makes a huge difference. So I don't huge. get the heroic success, but I get the, I don't get the heroic success, but I get the higher die. And it makes the game interesting when you're rolling the dice. I, I like this new game that we're going to start playing on the show. So you said momentum. What are some other games that use momentum as a mechanic? The 2D20 Modifius game uses a momentum as a mechanic. As you succeed, you can put more D20s in a in the middle go. that you can pull out sure. to roll. I can't think of another game offhand. Yeah, not not off the top of my head. But I, I like this game now where somebody mentions a mechanic. I'm just like, ooh, where did the DNA yeah, come who's got from? One, I yeah. like that. I will give a very concrete example cool. of a game where I did this. So it was a chase scene. We were playing 3.5 D&D. They were traversing rooftops during a chase, and they failed a jump roll. Now, if you read the 3.5 rules, which I did before we recorded this episode... They're very cut and dry. You yep. missed the jump. If you fail by five or less, you missed the jump, but you managed to have a chance to make a DC 15 reflex saving throw, dexterity saving throw to grab onto the edge. That's the rule, right? But this is a chase sequence. So if they fail that roll and they miss and they're just hanging on a, on a rooftop, they're out of the chase. So I was like, I started using this idea of soft moves before I even knew what a soft move was. They missed. Um, instead of grabbing the roof, I had them slight modification to the rule grab onto the spectral horse that they were chasing with the, the spectral evil rider on top of it, which was jumping from rooftop to rooftop because you know me, it's got to always be as pulpy as humanly possible. 
So then they're hanging on that. Then they failed the next roll. So then they fell off because that's the soft move into the hard move. And then I give somebody else a chance to save them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that is not a, a, like as an interrupt, which there wasn't really any interrupts in that game. Yep. So, you know, those are two modifications to the rule in some way, shape or form. Um, I mean, you could have gotten with something like uh, you take damage. I could have, or right. like you make your reflex saving throw to grab on or you fall down. Yeah. Right. Like, but that's not fun. That didn't work. Yeah. So there you go. Very cut and dry rule for how that works. For me, as I've talked about before, I ran a lot of games of Vigilantes back in college. This is a game that was designed in 1975, so it had a, a lot of very crunchy rules. And one of the things that happened is that some of your powers are very static. You have fire control, you have a range equal to your strength, and you do 1d12 damage. Other powers, like magnetics and telepathy and telekinesis, were based on a stat and your level times a number. And so as you went up in power, so did your abilities. The problem occurred when somebody wanted to do something that was a, a, an opposed role, like there's water coming this way. I want to use my fire to stop it. How much water can I stop? And I just simply adapted the rule for the non-static power to the static power. Well, okay, it's a fire attack. So let's, let's assume that we're going to use the same numbers that we'd use for magnetics. So it's going to be, you know, your strength times your level times 50 pounds. That's how many pounds of water you can stop with your fire. That's how much you'll evaporate or whatever. And very quickly, that became the standard for all the powers in the game. That everybody, first of all, you got more powerful as you went up in level but allowed you to do different things now. If you could manipulate this many pounds of air or water or, you know, vibratory ability or whatever, what could you do with it? It suddenly changed the scope. It was basically taking a power that existed for one thing and swapping it over to all the powers in the area. And it made the game much more flexible. And the fun thing was that it immediately opened up to all the players, new stuff they could do with their powers that the rules didn't state. And because it was dealing with a bunch of newer players at the time who'd never played role-playing games at all, they thought that they could only do what was in the rules. So it was just a lot of fun, and it became how I ran V&V for 10 years. Made it more adaptable. Question number two. What is a rule that you changed on the fly that you ended up modifying to use in a different game? Can I go first? You may. Cool. So I have modified skill challenges and used them for as long as they've existed because skill challenges are the most, and I brought this up because I do this all the time with all sorts of rules, but skill challenges are like the most reviled, hated mechanic ever in fourth edition D&D, and I, I think everybody was wrong because they just didn't understand what was going on with them because they didn't spend enough pages or time to actually discuss or describe how they were, were supposed to work. They were the most poorly implemented. They certainly were. They tried to go back and fix it. Yeah. I actually thought that mechanic was pretty good and it's, it's been copied constantly. It's been copied constantly. What's, what's funny is when I used to read fourth edition books, I'm like, this sounds stupid because I didn't play a lot of fourth edition. Yeah. Well, you were wrong. It's fine. Because of, <laughs> because of the, no, no, because of the way it was worded. Yeah. It's terribly written. Yeah. It would say things like, in like in the Eberron books, to convince the merchant of something, you have a combat against the merchant's negotiation skill. And I'm like, that just sounded like crap. Now I know what they were saying, but at the time, like, everything isn't combat. It was actually a decent rule. It was just poorly worded. If we're playing Chris's game, then it's Burning Wheel, because social combat is actually a subsystem in Burning Wheel that's specifically designed for negotiations, things like that. Burning Wheel isn't a game. Burning Wheel is a commitment. Burning Wheel is a, <laughs> is a mismatched collection of subsystems loosely connected by some light connective tissue that we were all told is the apex of gaming that most of us didn't play. Commitment. Is it four drunk subsystems in a trench coat? No. Kind of. It's like three raccoons in a trench coat. It, it is, but try like 30. Okay. Yeah. So I'm with you. I, I'm with you. I'm no longer of the hype that that game is the pinnacle of gaming. I mean, we were all told that at one point, but... I think there, I think there is a place for elegance. I don't think Burning Wheel is an elegant game. I think like us, there are way more people out here 
in this gaming sphere that talk about that game than have actually played that game. No, I've always admitted it was my Everest, but I also admitted the reason I didn't want to play the game was I didn't want to commit the time to the game. Yeah. So when it comes to skill challenges, I think what people didn't think about was using things like gates or different kinds of story beats or what partial successes mean or splitting nodes inside of the skill challenge. These are all ideas that could have been used inside of that. And Jerry's going to ask me a question now, probably what I'm talking about, which I was getting to. A gate is, here's a block until you succeed at this part to move on to the next part. A story beat is like when you succeed on the skill check, a sort of cutscene or other story moment appears within the skill challenge. A partial success means you need two or three successes to move past this particular part of the skill challenge, which is kind of like a gate. And then splitting nodes is like, well, if I got this many successes within this time, I can go this way. If I got, th if I didn't get them in this many times, I can go this way. So the skill challenge, because you don't want the skill challenge to actually stop until it is, has failed in some way, shape or form. And you could use the skill challenge as being like, get your number of successes before your failures, or you could use it as a time test like they do in other games these days, like Fate or Cortex or pick one. Put the clock on the table, Bazo oh, Baz. I'm sick mm -hmm. of your shit. There you go. That was a Blades in the Dark reference from Phil's game. Ba He's talked about Bazo Baz on the show like 50 yep. times. I know, because I heard him talk about it when you were on the show and I wasn't. <laughs> Remember every character. From That's fine. That <laughs> sure. I mean, that momentum thing, I've because I've run more than one Cortex game, that momentum game has leaked into just about every Cortex game I've run. Mm -hmm. it, it's when Sunday and I play Long Live the Queen, that same kind of thing where the effect die from a test can carry over to something else if it's going to happen immediately. Mm -hmm. I, I let that happen a lot. I just like it. I think for me, it's coming across with adapting success with complications to other game systems. It was something that came out in games that weren't into the static binary game systems. And as soon as I saw it and understood how to use it, I started loving using it in any game that had binary success. That you end up with something where if you had, you know, if you, you need to roll a 15 to succeed, well, they rolled the 13. Well, they didn't succeed exactly, but now they can succeed with the, with the complication or they can make a difficult choice. And I think that applies really well to a lot of games that don't have it written into the rules but it makes the games flow a lot better. It also makes players make more chances, take, take more chances on things. So I absolutely loathe pass-fail. Just like, oh, you didn't make the thing. You missed it by one. Oh, well, didn't do it. It only works if time passes and that matters. Yeah. yeah. Because then time is the resource that got spent. Mm -hmm. Time is the fire in which we burn. Sorry. It's good. Yeah. And I'll Star Trek on you. Question number three, what are some good guidelines when making a rule on the fly? And the basics are, I'm sure you can expand on this, keep it fair. Keep it balanced if possible and keep it short. Doesn't always have to be balanced, but try not to make your rules super, super long. If you're doing a rule on the fly and you have to write out four pages of explanation and discuss it for 45 minutes, it's gone too long. If you can do it in 10, 15 minutes, because sometimes you have to go back and forth on what the complications would be. That's pretty much it. Keep it fair, balanced if possible and short. 10, 15 minutes. That's like death. It's like dead air, right? Yes. I don't know. I've, I've seen us talk about it. I've seen about the three, the four of us talk. Sorry. Doesn't mean it's not dead air. It doesn't mean no. it's not dead air. <laughs> it didn't mean it didn't kill the game. It didn't mean it didn't take me out of the game. It did take us out of the game. That's why I said short. You got one, Phil, before I like expound upon this idea? I do. And I think mine will just tack onto the top of yours, which is um, where possible, lean into precedence. Yeah. If there's already an existing rule that looks like the thing that you want to do, like you can borrow that shape, that framework, that general philosophy do that before you do something completely novel and different. Like Jerry did in V and V with the, oh, the, the, the magnet magnetism. Misdirected Mark word scramble. scramble. Magnetism works like this. Let's apply that to the fire so that you can do the thing. Yeah. I, I think I, my general rule is if there's a place I can borrow it from first, I'll do that before I try to make something novel out of it. 
just because I least hope that the other thing was play tested. To go along with Phil, I agree with everything he just said, but understanding the underlying system really helps a lot. If you understand the game, you can really modify it to make it dance for you. I also think that you should always have the rule, if you're making a rule up on the fly, skew in the player's favor. After that, it's situational to the rule that you're making up on the fly. Now, moving on from that, if you're confident in your system mastery, I think it's important to make the rule and stakes known to the players. That's very important. Give them the option to weigh in on what's happening right now. And then give them the option to try another way using the rules that are a part of the game system if that is not amenable to what they want mm -hmm. to do. I think those three things, if you have pretty good system mastery and you can really manipulate and modify things on the fly like that, then those are the three steps that I would take. That's good. No, I agree. I mean, a lot of times when we come up with these things, especially in Ox and stuff, I'll, I'll just say to Chris, what do you think? Where do you think we should go with this? We constantly have those conversations. Mm -hmm. well, yep. I don't play games long enough to achieve high enough system mastery. And to be honest, I'm often too busy busy to sit and study a rule system. So like once it gets up and running, I tend to be just okay with it as is. Like, I don't know. I've never dedicated myself to any game for more than a year. Uh, that's not true. Way been, back in the day. You've been playing Iron Cortex Heroes. for over a year. I've been playing Cortex for over a year. But that, that, it's, a, it's a hard game to system master because it's not one game. It's true. I envy people who can play like five years of D&D. &D. Like, I bet I would be great at D&D if I played it for five years straight. But that's never what I wind up doing, right? So I just play a game long enough until it kind of, till we're done playing it and then, you know, we're done. So often I just kind of flub through the rules and take cues from everybody else. Like, I don't always want to be the one mechanically solving things because I'm often not the one who has the deepest understanding of the rules at the table. It matters too much to me for me to not to I know, which is also the reason why I just usually turn to you and be like, what do you think? Because... <laughs> you probably already do know it better than I do because that's not what I've been doing. It's just part of my, I go, I don't know how my head works. I'm like, if the game doesn't oh, yeah. do the thing and I can't understand why the game's in the thing, then it's, then it's terrible. Like, I'm like, why are we doing that? That's not how this game works. That's, that's how you're wired. Yeah, it cool. is. I uh, also think that this is definitely one of the advantages, this idea of um, system mastery and also like being able to draw from other games, being poly gamers helps with that. You read enough mm -hmm. game systems, you just sort of have an underlying feel for how these things work sure. or should work. I have the jack of all trades. I've sipped as many games as I possibly could in 40 years. That's one of your distinctions, for sure. <laughs> but master, very few of them. In fact, not only that, I will forget most of the game shortly after playing it. Oh, that's weird. I always remember. I mean, I'm sure if I go, like, for instance, I just got the supplements for Forbidden Lands. Mm -hmm. and started flipping through the supplements and then was like, oh yeah, that rule exists. To this day, I can't even think of Bob's character's name. Played 42 sessions of that game, we stopped playing it for a year, can't remember anything uh, about it. It's interesting, because when I went and looked up that rule about 3rd edition jumping, I'm like, oh, I remember all of this. Like, I read the first line, yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, it's all rushing back to me now. Yeah, I don't... I'm, I, I'm, I'm more like Chris. The, the bizarre thing is, you could hand me a stack of character sheets and a couple of dice from a game that I've, that I've played or run 30 years ago, and I could run the game. I, I need a rule book to find a couple of fiddly rules, but I could run the base mechanic of that game and run a, camp, run, run a couple of adventures in it without having seen the rules and not having played it for 15 years. This brain operates in the now. <laughs> if it's not currently being loaded into memory for something, I don't remember it. I don't remember past episodes. I only remember vague details from past campaigns. I can barely remember character names from past campaigns. Sometimes can't even remember my characters from past campaigns. If it isn't existing in the now, my brain will pack it up and deep six it. 
There are a few exceptions to that, but I, I definitely agree with you because I've experienced that with you enough that yeah, I, yeah. I, I totally, but yes, there are a couple of exceptions. If a game takes a long enough break, we run into that risk. Yeah. I have tools for mitigating that, but for there, sure. There are a few that stand out that, that were just so exceptional or had that certain moment. Sure. You know. What it gets me is I'll, I'll have a game like that. I'll remember 90% of it, but I'll forget things like, all right, how does initiative work in this fucking game? Pardon my French. Folks at home, let us know. Do you remember the games that you played like five, 10 years ago? Or mm-hmm. do you just like, poof, gone? I'm I curious. mean, that's why I thought gangbusters would have been a good idea. <laughs> I mean, what did I remember? <clears throat> then I started rereading the rules. I was like, fuck, this is terrible. Yeah. Like, that's before I was on the show. Like I told you that. We just did a whole bunch of jamming side stuff. We did not really loop in our resident eternal player. So Bob, as being a player and sitting on the other side of the screen when the GM's just making up rules for certain situations, like what's your feel about it? Like, is it okay if it happens a bunch? Is it disturbing? Like we're... Where is it comfortable and when is it like, oh, why is this happening? If you have a game that is not Cortex Prime, <laughs> where you're kit bashing your stuff together to make the game that you're going to play, then if it keeps happening over and over, then it starts to become a problem. However, uh, with good GMs, being able to take those situations and do something on the fly with the information that we've provided previously from all three of you doing it quickly, making the thing on uh, the choice and not being overly complex. All of those things, those are good things. I don't mind that. Something like a Cortex Prime where we went into it knowing we're going to be taking a bunch of stuff and putting it together and there may be some situations that we're going to run into. It is hugely beneficial having people like Phil and Chris at the table to be able to take those, disseminate what's going on, make a most often very good rule change on the fly that makes sense for what we're doing. We get it done quickly and we, and we get back to the game. I don't know so, if I lump myself in that list, but sure. You're not wired the way Chris is where he can take a game and break it down and be like, Oh, I understand exactly how this thing works and that kind of thing. But you have all of the experience and you've seen a ton and you've done a ton. So the combination of those things is great for those types of situations. I think part of what, what Phil brings to the table also is Phil will ask the question, what do you think about X? Yeah. And that's where Chris can jump back in with, well, I think X, Y, Z, or the rules say this, we should add this. And then all of a sudden it becomes a discussion. You have a pretty good idea when, when I'm underwater. I was going to say, Bob, I'm glad that two things, really I'm glad. I'm glad that you said that thing that you said, because we play, you play D and D with me and my D and D games. I'm constantly making up stuff all the time. Yes. It is inside the rules. Usually. That's a little different because you're, you're not hitting a situation where there's an obvious gap or a problem as much. You're hitting things where like, I think it would be better if we do it like this, or I feel like this would flow better like this, or I want to play with it because I want to twist it a little bit and make it do something just a little different than what it was written to do. And you're very creative like that. And it's, I have never in all the time playing D and D with you experienced a change like that that fell flat it always worked that's a very kind thing and to say. a lot of them i don't even realize that you made the change i think part of it is also that a lot of what chris is doing when he's doing gming is when he's thinking at least it appears to be when he's planning the adventure he's creating the re- rules on the fly before we hit the table no 
It feels like, like but, am, but am I right, Bob? Well, they're not on the fly if it's before you hit That's the That's what I'm saying. It doesn't feel that way, though. It feels like Chris has got something coming. Hey, I thought about this. Let's do this. And, and to the players at the table, there's a little bit of implied confidence that, oh, he's thought this through already. Let's go with it. But, I'm more prone to do that. Yeah. I'm yeah. the one who shows up with, I just messed with this aux mechanic because I think it's going to do a thing that I want it to do or... Hey, let's do this thing where the dice represent different parts of the ship. Yeah. I'm the one who's likely to do that. Chris is more likely to just. Man, I show up at the table with things. I'm like, I think this will work. And then five seconds and I'm like, well, that was not what I intended. So time to do the other thing. You have done the preemptive yeah. thing where you played with the way things work. Sure. Like that thing with the, with the cards and the names and the, like you, you planned that. Yeah. That's, not really, that. A, that's but, not really a rule, right? You know, you, whenever you do a thing on the fly. Mm hmm there is definitely an implied confidence mm -hmm. whether or not you feel it internally when you try the thing, there is an implied confidence from the way you game master. You don't have to, have to strike my ego anymore. We're no, I'm just, I'm just saying. The, well, this the is why way you don't play poker with Chris. The way you GM and the experience that you have and the way your brain works, I've never felt like you are unsure in the moment whether or not your change the, is the thing. That's important because as a GM, as a player, when you see that from a GM, you follow through. The other thing I'm glad is what Phil said, because whenever I edit the AP, it sounds like I'm an, that, that guy at the table <laughs> that's always commenting on the rules. <laughs> I'm like, damn it. Cause I leave it in there, <laughs> but I appreciate, I appreciate that we came out. So it don't sound like that. You're, you're not, you know, you're not that guy at the I table know. though. No. You're the guy we ask. It doesn't mean it doesn't sound like that. I mean, know me. <laughs> I, I'll say this for me as a GM, I know I'm not going to master the rules. And then if the players also are like, well, I'm not reading the rules either, then we're playing with whatever I can remember. Yeah. Fast and loose. And sometimes that means you're just going to have to put up with whatever I come up with in the game. When I ran Pathfinder, I had a player who was the ultimate rules lawyer. And there were times playing the game that something came up and I'm just like, Aaron, what's the rule on this? And let him tell the, tell the table, like, okay, yeah, we'll use that. That's fine. It's okay to have somebody who knows the rules better Man, than the GM. I don't want a rules lawyer, though. I want a rules assistant. You're not. Yeah, that's the difference. Yes. Aaron was a rules lawyer. But when you have somebody who knows the rules better than the GM, lead into that player as a GM. See, they make the game a lot easier. I just need to feed the SRD to chat GPT and then start yeah, being like on. chat GPT. Like, what, what do I do here? Yeah, just like I said, feed it in there. Get the auto, <laughs> just, like yeah. text, uh, text to speech, speech to text back at you. Yeah, just what am I, text what am I, what am I doing here? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I'm going this way in the story. The rules aren't keeping up with me. So what do we do here? Yeah. Bob, what is question number four? Question number four. What are some of the reasons to make a rule on the fly instead of using raw or just hand waving it? I can only think of two. Raw doesn't always produce the effect you're looking for at the moment in the game right there. And that, that comes in two flavors. One, a satisfying result to what's happening. And two, there's an edge case. So it doesn't make sense to use the rule as written. Mm -hmm. I can't think of any other ones. Anybody else got any? Pretty much what Chris said. I sometimes do a rule on the fly simply when it's obvious to me that a different rule in the same game applies here where it doesn't normally say so. So you could just take one rule and apply it here instead. That's still technically ruling on the fly, but you're doing it for the same reasons that Chris is saying. Hey, if we just do this instead of this, we'll be able to get the result positive or negative that we want. I go by gut feel. Sometimes I make a on the fly ruling because I feel like the thing that happened should have something, even if the rules aren't going to give it to me. That's how that momentum thing starts. So it's like, oh yeah, you can make that test and sure, I can tell you a thing, but oh wow, you got a D12. Like you did like super great at that. I feel like there should be something else that goes with it. Cool, carry that D12 over to your next roll. That's just a place where it's not that the rules are wrong. It's just that I feel like the story is going in a certain place and I don't have a rule that 
helps me carry it along. So sometimes I just carry it myself. Is there anything else we'd like to talk about surrounding the idea of creating rules on the fly? I mean, there's a bunch of games that have this stuff baked into them. I, I mean, a lot of PBTA games and PBTA adjacent games have you building custom moves. Mm-hmm. That is essentially making a ruling on a fly. Mm-hmm. It's telling you you can do it. Mm-hmm. You can do it. You can also then convert it to a stable rule. Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot to be said for on-the-fly stuff is good. There are times where you want to carry that on-the-fly stuff permanently into the into the game. Yeah, this is that house rule thing, right? You yeah. make a house rule, and then you eventually turn it into a, a, a real rule in your game. Like, it's a one-time ruling that turns into a house rule. Yeah. This happens a lot in the early days of wargaming. When we were running early days of Mage Knight, there weren't a lot of rules out there. And so we were running tournaments with 30 players. We'd end up with something that, didn't, that we didn't know what to do with. So we would gather all the players together at a table, stop the timer, and... I said, you want three minutes to discuss what's going on at this table and what's our rule going to be for this session? And we talk about what worked and then play it. And that became the hard case rule until somebody came out with something official that changed it. So this can even be applied to other games, game types. Yeah, I suppose. It borders on that whole board game versus role-playing game conversation we yeah. had earlier. That's because I was a role-playing gamer who was running board games. So I just brought my philosophy from one into the other. Use the tools you have. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's move on to Patreon shoutouts, man. All right, big shout-outs to Brian Kurtz. My Brett, not really mine, but somebody's Brett. Chris Steele. Jared Rasher. Eileen and Brandon Barnes. Chris Constantine. Mirko Frolik. Eric Simon. Fiona. Not that Billy Mitchell. And Huxley. I'm glad they clarified that. Yeah, it's not that Billy Mitchell. I was worried about Billy Mitchell. And, you know, thanks to everybody for listening to this. If you like the show, you can hear more just like it at misdirectedmark.com. And if that's not enough, and you know it isn't, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMP, which has hundreds of bonus episodes available. Aside from the bonus episodes from the after show and the Bamboo Lounge, you also get our MM Plays stuff, like Phil's Nifty Setting for Children of the Shroud, our characters from that game, the mods that we're using, Phil's Session Zero worksheet, good stuff there. Beyond that, there's also Chris's game development notes on the Lamplighter system, which is going to power the Streets of Avalon RPG, and, most importantly, access to our Slack channel which is the best way to talk to us. Also, it fills behind the screens, which the second one will come out as soon as the second story is done. Also, I figured out the magic system finally for the Streets of Avalon role-playing game, so I'll probably post an update about that. Soon. It's been taken, it took me a long time to figure it out. And if the Slack channel isn't your thing, you can always email us directly at mmp at misdirectedmark.com or hit us up on Twitter at misdirectedmark and, and pretty much in all the other social media places at misdirectedmark is the best place to get a response. There are other places you can find us on the internet. Let's go around and shout out some of those places, starting with Chris. I am at the Light 101 on Twitter. I am also on Dice Camp now. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Chris Sneeze. Yeah, it is. It's Chris Sneeze on Dice Camp. There you go. So you can find me in those two places. What about you, Jerry? I'm GM Jerry Mander on Facebook, Twitter, and Dice Camp. I am at Robert M. Everson on Twitter and Dice Camp. DNA Phil pretty much everywhere. Nice. Last, we have a bunch of other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions. The roster includes Pandas Talking Games, The Gnomecast, Bonus Experience, and Thaco with Advantage. You know, if that still isn't enough, we have friends who also create content. There's the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, the Knights of the Night with their excellent AP, Mastering Dungeons, which is all about 5th edition D&D, and How to RPG, hosted by Sean P. Kelly of Gaming MBS. You can catch him live on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern on YouTube, and I'm almost always there in the chat. All right. This has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of encoded designs. Mic drop. We out.